Hey everybody, welcome to another Canine Cop Shop Talk. And uh, I am super excited about today's episode because with me I have Dr. Caleb Lack, who is a clinical psychologist and author. And uh, he is a professor at the, um, for the Department of Psychology at the University of Central Oklahoma. And uh, Dr. Lack, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm happy to be on. Good. So for those of you that don't know who Dr. Lack is, um, again, he, University of Central Oklahoma, but he has also written six books, over 60 scientific articles. He also somehow, on top of being a professor and writing all these scientific articles, he manages two blogs. And uh, he also debuted, and how I met him was through the documentary, Reasons to Believe. You can catch that. I watched it on Amazon um, Prime. So you can catch that on Amazon Prime. And I think, it, I'm sure it's on some other platforms too. I highly recommend watching that documentary. I was so inspired by the things that Dr. Lack said in that documentary that I reached out to him and he was kind enough to grace us with his presence. So I'm uh, very excited about this. Um, I think we've been trying to what, coordinate this for almost a month now? Yeah, yeah, we've got busy schedules, I think. So. We do. We I'm glad do. I can be on now. Yeah. At the end of this interview, I'm going to point you in the right direction with a link as to where you can buy uh, Dr. Lack's books that he's written. And there's one book in particular that I'm going I'm to hold off on. I'm going to keep everybody hanging until the very end, because in the pre-interview, I asked Dr. Lack if he could recommend one book on this topic, which I'll get into in a moment. Um, what book would you recommend? And you can purchase his books on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and there's any place that really sells a book, right? Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So the topic of discussion is belief. What we've noticed in the canine training world is that a lot of canine handlers with the important job that you have, somebody teaches you uh, a technique and you, you have certain tools in your toolbox. And if anybody says, well, there's a better tool, a lot of handlers get all pissed off. We see people, uh, other handlers railroading other handlers or canine trainers on the internet. And in my opinion, and some of the other canine trainers that I've been talking to and interviewing over the last couple months, they agree with me. That's all got to go. We, we need to have more of an open mind. So the question is, why do we get to that place where we just close our ears and we don't want to hear it? And I wanted to bring in an expert in this field of belief. And so this is where Dr. Lack comes into play. And before we actually get into the nitty gritty, Dr. Lack, would you mind giving us a little bit of a background and what made you get into clinical psychology and wanting to be a professor and all that good stuff? Yeah, so uh, I actually grew up in a very rural area in Oklahoma. Uh, farming and ranching was pretty much the only job that was around. Um, and I went to college and then actually discovered psychology uh, my second semester, I guess, and I kind of haven't looked back since then. Um, so I've been studying psychology and I'm a professor for you know about two over two decades, I guess now. Um, and got into clinical psychology specifically because I was working um, with people who had PTSD and other kinds of severe anxiety problems. Um, so a lot of my early research was on PTSD in particular in children uh, after natural disasters. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I just kind of kept moving and expanding kind of expertise level uh, to all the other anxiety problems and 
one of the things about anxiety and about actually most mental health uh, is that what really undergirds a lot of the problems people experience are the beliefs that they hold. And it's the beliefs that they hold either about themselves, about the world, or about the future. And so digging more into, you know, how can we shift those beliefs? What are the methods that we use to shift those beliefs? Uh, kind of dovetailed naturally with my um, interest in just kind of science in general and particularly scientific skepticism. So having a good critical thinking mind and how can we make that not just for me, but how can we help the world become better critical thinkers? Mm-hmm. And so that really, those two areas, it turns out dovetail nicely because when I work with, let's say somebody who has obsessive compulsive disorder, I'm working on changing their beliefs that are leading to them to have all sorts of problems. Mm-hmm. And even if somebody doesn't have a mental health condition, it turns out their beliefs can get them in a lot of trouble. That's true. And yeah, as you kind of alluded to earlier, you know, that can be either, you know, I'm doing something that maybe is not the most effective or maybe I'm buying something that isn't actually worth it or I'm wasting time doing X or Y. Um, And so for me, those two areas kind of naturally collided scientific skepticism and clinical psychology. Mm -hmm. And thanks to my background, uh, I'm able to be a little bit less, uh, less of the, the angry skeptic. Mm-hmm. and more of the, okay, well, let's show you how to think about this a little more rationally. Let's show you how to think about how to not be defensive. And maybe let's even talk about changing those beliefs. Wow. And, you know, it's interesting because you, you brought up that um, you've studied PTSD a lot and you've developed a lot of um, uh, kind of um, therapeutic ways of, of dealing with PTSD through changing the belief, because that's one of the things I'm, I'm diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. And that's one of the things that I'm learning as I go through therapy myself is that sometimes we have those stuck points. Um, I went through um, cognitive processing therapy and we talked about those stuck points. And for me, it was the self-blame that, you know, I, I developed this idea or this belief that I could have done something to change the outcome and maybe my buddy wouldn't have, have died. Yeah. And so once again, though, that boiled, that goes back to belief and, and it created, you know, all kinds of things like nightmares and, and um, other stressors. I started um, my self-worth begin to go down based on that one belief, which I, I found was really amazing. Yeah. So it's, go ahead. And it's, and it's, you know, it's incredible how little most people stop and think about their beliefs. Right. And how those beliefs then impact not just what I think about myself, but how I interact with other people, um, you know, who I interact with, who I, what I think about, you know, the world in general, my behaviors, I mean, the emotions I experience, you know, those are really all rising from the different kinds of beliefs we have. Mm-hmm. Well, and not to mention too the, the physiological impact that negative beliefs have on the body. Um, you know, as I am studying psychology, um, I'll never forget my, I think it was my um, abnormal psychology class. My professor was talking about how the moment we have negative thoughts, the HPA axis in the brain is activated and our brain produces cortisol. And unfortunately, even though cortisol is a necessity, it inhibits the action of the white blood cells. It increases the chances of infection. It promotes weight gain. 
it's, it's really has some damaging effects if prolonged day after day after day. And the only way to reduce it is to change the belief that's creating the negative thought, correct? Yeah, you can't just, you know, put a syringe in and draw out the extra cortisol or anything. You have to, you know, stop the what's activating that in the first place. Okay. Um, and that, that HPA axis is really implicated in a lot of our anxiety disorders, mm-hmm. uh, PTSD, OCD, uh, generalized anxiety, social anxiety, fears and phobias. Uh, and you see that sort of full body effect of here's how I'm thinking about interpreting this particular stimuli causes entire body to to respond right well and i think for people to truly understand what we're talking about i really feel like we kind of need to go back to the beginning could you talk to our viewers a little bit about how beliefs are formed and i i know and on the pre-interview i was telling dr lack that um look i'm just going to ask this question you can run with it and he's like well i teach a 16-week course i could literally talk for 16 weeks so I know that that is a loaded question, but if you could just give our viewers, um, you know, maybe however long you think it takes yeah. them to understand, but if you could share a little bit with us about how our beliefs are formed and why they exist. Yeah, I think, I think probably the, the most important sort of baseline thing to realize is that most of us are not consciously choosing our beliefs, right? We're not setting down one day and being like, I'll believe this and this, and this, all right, thank you. It's not like a menu that we're ordering from. Instead, our beliefs happen because of our experiences. And that would be okay if we always interpreted the information around us in a logical, rational way, right? But we don't. So instead, what we tend to do is we form our beliefs based on the beliefs of those around us. Uh, If you just take religion as an example, the best predictor of your own religious faith is your geographic location, yeah. right? That's the single best predictor. Um, and that's simply because you're more likely to have those folks around you that have that belief, right? So if my parents grow up in a particular church, I'm very likely to develop those beliefs, right? Just because of who I'm surrounded by, what information I'm exposed to. And in particular, whether or not I'm ever told it's okay to question that information, right? right. Or is instead, our authority is the only way that I'm supposed to learn, right? If someone tells me something, does that mean, okay, well, this is now gospel, right? This is written in stone. This is true and accurate. And I should never question that. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of us, particularly as we're growing up, you know, in our early age, that very much is true. And there's some good reasons for that, right? Like in general, if someone survived longer than me, there's a good chance they may know a thing or two. Sure. Um, but the problem like- is, Oh, go ahead. If I could interrupt real quick, it's almost like compounding beliefs. Like you just said, well, this person's older than I am, so you believe that they're trustworthy. And so it's really a belief that creates another belief that I must listen to this person. It must be true. Yeah, and especially when it's reinforced in your environment, right? So if you're, if you're praised for obeying and listening to the authority figure and doing what they tell you to do all the time, then you start naturally developing that tendency to, uh, this is an authority, I need to listen to them, this is how things work, I can't question it, right? Or if you're punished for questioning, right? Or if you're punished for going against what the, you know, the majority belief is in whatever realm we're talking about, politics, 
scientific matters, you know, uh, who you can and can't trust, it doesn't matter. Um, but what happens is we typically, we, we start forming those beliefs based on who we're exposed to, what's happening around us, right? And then the key aspect here is what maintains beliefs, I think. Because, you know, you're not, you're not doing a video blog to two-year-olds, right? You're, you're talking to adults. So they've already formed all these beliefs. Um, and so understanding then, you know, what is it that's maintaining a belief? Whether that belief is what I would call justified or not, meaning does it have good empirical or logical reasons for it or not? Lots of us are very good at maintaining those beliefs, even in the face of evidence against them. Mm-hmm. And that's the, I think the, the difficult part as you grow up and as you become an adult is we display what's called belief perseverance, which is once I hold a belief, it's really hard to shift it. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, arguing with people on the internet doesn't work, right? right. Like I tell them they're wrong. And even if I'm right, they're just going to be like, yeah, whatever you suck. Yeah. Um, you know, I hate you. I'm going to be even more sure of my beliefs now, uh, even if they're not well-justified beliefs. Well, and I think too, on the documentary, you mentioned the, the, the two words, psychological reactance. And I think, is, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. So, so psychological reactance is where uh, if I'm just sort of directly confronted with evidence that goes against what it is that I believe, I do, I do very quickly uh, kind of put my shields up, right? Block it off, start finding problems in what you've told me. And then rather than weakening the belief, it actually strengthens it. So it's not just that I know this now, it's now I'm sure of it because you told me I was wrong. Right? Because how, how often do you know, most of us um, want to be told that we're wrong? Yeah. We don't like it, right? Because what does it mean? Well, it means, you know, I'm dumb, I'm stupid, I was wrong, I've wasted all this time and energy, money, et cetera. And so most of us are, you know, trying to protect our own egos, not necessarily consciously, but that's what we do, right? So if someone tells us we're wrong, we automatically put those shields up, right? And we're like, no, 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 don't you, you that, that information can't come in here, right? No, no, I'm not gonna hear that nonsense. But if someone tells us something that is congruent with my belief, right? So it, it's the same thing as what I believe. What do we do? Come in here, right? Get in here, right there. I'm going to remember you. I'm going to, you know, two years later, I'll remember that particular, you know, point or argument or whatever it is because it already fit with what I believe. And that's what really what we call the confirmation bias, yeah. which is our, our natural tendency to, accept um, just unquestioningly information that confirms our beliefs and then reject information that goes against our beliefs. And we all do that, all of us very naturally um, for whatever kind of belief we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Now, isn't it true, real quick, if if you don't mind me jumping in, um, when you talk about confirmation bias, this has actually come up in the canine world quite a bit. Um, I think when I was reading about your, your background, you talked about pseudoscience or like fake science. Like th- there's a lot of things that get skewed with certain 
so-called scientific research, uh, research articles even. And I, I've tried to educate our viewers on like sample sizes. Like um, what mm -hmm. I learned in psychology, the minimum sample size for a good qualified um, empirical research for statistical value purposes is 30 or more. So anything less than 30 really doesn't provide enough statistical evidence, but they can still publish that. So then people are gonna grab that and say, see, I was right. Or they take a solid uh, piece of research and they only pick out certain sentences that support their belief. And, and that really goes into that, that's, that's confirmation bias also, correct? Yeah, very much. And that's specifically, that's what we would call cherry picking, right? So uh, I'm presented with an entire you know, large menu of things. And I just pick those things that will confirm what it is I already believe, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then I'm gonna ignore everything else. Even if there's, let's say, you know, 50 things that show that I'm wrong and three things that show that I'm right, oh, yep, see, there's those things that show that I'm right. That's yeah. what I'm doing, right? And I'm gonna take those and again, I'm gonna remember those, I'm gonna pay attention to them. And then I'm going to ignore and discount the other things. Um, and this is a, I think, a, a huge issue um, in a lot of fields is when you've got someone that's published research, okay, what's the quality of the research? Mm -hmm. Where has it been published? Who's doing reviews, right? I, um, you know, as an example, and there's, I think, one of my blogs has kind of the whole story. I get contacted all the time from what we would call predatory journals, mm -hmm. which are these journals that just want you to pay a large amount of money and you can send in whatever and they'll say it's peer reviewed and then they'll publish it online in one of their journals. Right. But all it is is a scam. You know, they want you to pay them $800 to publish this journal. That's, you know, headquartered out of an office in Russia uh, or China. And there's, they're publishing 200 journals a month, right? Uh, none of which actually have peer review. Right. Uh, so I actually, I got one of these for a, a, it was a journal on alternative medicine, right? And I thought, I'm going to have fun with this. Like, let's, let's do something with this. So I, I sent them in. And I was like, yeah, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to publish this, but I'm not going to pay your money. Uh, what can you do for me? You know, and we literally went back and forth for three months. And they kept coming down, right? They were like $800, they're like 750, you know? And I just kept being like, I've got a Kohl's coupon and some change. Like, can we, can we, can we give that to you? Uh, what's your office in China and I'll send that over, right? And finally, they eventually were just like, please just publish, you know? And so I published a satirical article in their scientific journal and their peer reviewers, you know, took 40 minutes to review it immediately sent it back, said, this is fantastic. When I was literally making fun of what they were doing, right? Like that's wow. satire. Um, but there's all these sorts of journals out there like that now. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's a number of them out there in animal behavior, animal mm -hmm. cognition, even perhaps dog training specifically, yep. where it turns out, I don't know if you guys know this or not, right? People can lie on the internet. Oh, come on. You mean everything that you read on Google made is not always true? I know it's it's uh, and even on social media it turns out too they can lie. Uh, <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> but if you don't have a really good solid scientific background, you can't sift 
the sense from the nonsense, right? You can't determine, is this a legitimate journal? Because the website looks pretty fancy and, you know, it's got the American Journal of Animal Cognition or something like that. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, wow, this seems pretty legit. But it's not, right? And that's where, you know, I think we have to have what I call our bullshit detectors on at all times when we're online. Um, and especially if I'm being given information that fits with what it is I already believe. Yeah. Because that's when we're especially most vulnerable to, oh, yep, I knew it. I knew it. Right. And not saying, hold on a second. Let me look. Let me see. Is this the real person that even wrote this? Right. Like, who are they funded by? What's yeah. their, you know, what's their, uh, you know, kind of end game here or their goal? What are they trying to get you to do? Buy something from them, you know, uh, sign up for a training, whatever it happens to be as opposed to here's someone who's doing research that's as unbiased as we can get. Yeah. That then gives us more information about how the world actually is or how it works. Right. Right. Well, and I feel like too, that even if some research is just a load of crap, if it makes people feel good and they get rewarded by the people around them, like, you know, they spit out some nonsense, but, oh, I read it on the internet and people will say, oh man, you're so smart. I mean, there's your reinforcer. And then soon all that bull crap just becomes a part of their memory. And then they're spreading that to all the people that they can influence. And again, going back to, and I, I really want to ask you this question from, from your professional point of view. Um, it's the, the quality of trust or the amount of trust that you have in another human being that could do like what we were talking about, like the, the social impact, like your, your social environment, like mom or dad, it's my parents. They love me. Why would they lie to me? It must be true. You know, if you want to talk about religion. Um, and so I feel like a lot of trainers or handlers um, or anybody in the dog industry and, and many other industries, but because this is canine related, you know, we'll talk about that. But I feel like a lot of people, because they have a false sense of trust for the person sending the message and providing the information, that they just adopt it without really investigating any further. Why should they if they have trust in the person? Is, is this accurate? And can you, can you kind of talk about some of the, maybe the deeper dynamics? Yeah. So there's, so in, in my critical thinking class, we, we first, we have a, a section on kind of why you can't trust your brain, right? Which is a lot of what we just talked about in terms of the confirmation bias and other ways that we process information. We also have a section called why you can't trust your world. And that talks about the social influence of things. Um, so whether that's an authority figure or whether that's everyone around me, even if they're not authority figures who are all saying the same thing, right? And all, you know, reinforcing each other for a particular kind of belief or things like advertising. Mm. So um, it's extremely easy to come off, for example, as an expert today, because I can have my website, I can have my YouTube channel, I can have a social media following, even if it's mostly bots, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden it looks like all these people are paying attention to me and what I'm saying. And particularly if I am, you know, not that I have this problem, but if I'm handsome and good looking, right? Um, if I'm very charismatic, 
if I'm dynamic, then what you start to see is you start to see what we call a halo effect, where those qualities start bleeding over into people wanting to believe what it is that they're being told, right? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I like this, right? This looks good. You know, this person is, it's handsome, they're suave, they're smooth, you know, they're very pretty. Well, I'm going to believe them more. And we know that actually from a ton of research that that's very much the case. Um, and so that whole, especially if you are conditioned from an early age to uh, believe authorities, right? And to believe them unquestioningly, which is the problem, right? Like believing in authority is not that bad or a problem if they have evidence to back it up, right? right. But if I'm believing them simply because they're an authority, that's where we start seeing these problems. Uh, and if I'm, again, raised from a young age within that mindset, if I'm perhaps working in a field where it's been, I've been sort of conditioned to accept authority and to not question authority, especially very hierarchical fields like, for example, military and law enforcement, yeah. then a lot of times it makes us a little more prone to just, oh, they said this, they're an authority figure, I mean, why would they lie, right? And I'm not saying that all the time authority figures lie and tell you misinformation by any means, right? And I'm not even saying that authority figures sometimes tell you misinformation and they're lying. People can believe things very truly and deeply that are still inaccurate, right? And they can pass that information on. One example that I use uh, in my class of that is you know, I ask my students if they've ever had to take a multiple choice test, right? And of course they have. And I said, okay, well, who in here has ever been told that, you know, if you are taking a test and you put down an answer and then later you think, I don't know if that's right or not, that you should always stick with your first response. And they're all like, yeah, everyone's telling, yep, we've been told that. Who told you that? Teachers told us that, you know, test companies told us that when in fact that's empirically untrue. Like we know from carefully controlled studies, if you think that something is wrong later, it's probably because you've encountered new information that makes you think, Oh, I should probably change that. And the people who go back and change those answers that they're now unsure of end up with higher grades. Hmm. Now were their teachers lying to them? Were they like, I'm going to flunk these little sons of guns, right? Like, no, um, their teachers probably believed that. Why did they believe it? Because they've been told it probably by their teachers, right? And this stuff gets passed down where unless you stop and question it and say, I'm sorry, what's the evidence to support that, right? Like, can you, can you show me evidence to, to actually back that up? Then we just kind of fall into that natural uh, human kind of thing of, oh, okay. Authority told me, sounds good to me, I'll trust them. And, you know, I'm sure that we have large amounts of that in the dog training world. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, I grew up farming and ranching uh, around all sorts of animals. And I've got uh, a little hobby farm now with like goats and pigs and things. And I've seen that in so many different realms when it comes to different kinds of animals. Uh, Really? Horse training is a huge one, right? Where you'll have these gurus who say, this is the way that we train horses, or that's the way that we train horses. And then you go somewhere else and they're like, no, that's completely nonsense. We do this, we do that, you know? Um, Or this is the way to, you know, work cattle in this way or that way. Uh, 
And the question is, okay, well, that's what you're doing, but is there any actual evidence to show that that is the best way? Like, have you compared these ways? Have you tested these ways in a non-biased, you know, kind of experiment to see, are we getting what we actually want to get? Well, and um, what's interesting about that is you mentioned that, you know, uh, when you talk about uh, like professors teaching something and, and well, where did they learn that from? Well, they learned it from someone else and that person learned it from someone else. And I think that that's what a lot of canine trainers and, and handlers are failing to realize is that science is always changing and evolving. Um, we're always learning new stuff. So what we knew a hundred years ago may have been changed the smarter we get with scientific research and therefore methods and the way of dealing things is dealing with issues is different for example we don't go in and take out pieces of brain out anymore to try to fix seizures you know we don't drill holes in the head to let the demons escape for behavioral issues like we used to do back in the day because we evolved and we learn and you have to change as we discover more truths about people and horses and dogs and cats and so on and so forth, um, that's just, that's why people like you exist is to help the lay people understand that, Hey, well, you know, five years ago, we didn't know what we know now. So yeah, how we used to deal with this maybe isn't really the best, but it was the best for the knowledge that we had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I often talk to my classes about, we talk about the difference between something like a science and a pseudoscience or a non-science. Um, and one of the things about science is that, like you mentioned, it's always changing, right? but it's always changing for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. And that reason is, is that we now know we were wrong. Yeah. Not because someone else came and told us, but because we tested ourselves to fail, right? Like every time that I and my students put together an experiment, we're trying to disprove what it is we believe, right? And that's the key to science is that I'm trying to prove myself wrong all the time because it's super easy to find evidence for what it is that you already believe. And it's really easy to even set up a study to prove what you want to prove. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't tell you anything. It's only if we are doing experiments that show that hey, I've tried to test myself to fail, right? I've tried to show I'm wrong and I still got these results. Mm-hmm. It's only then that we can really start trusting those things. Right. Uh, but that means that we progress. You know, if I look at a physics textbook from 100 years ago and now, they're very different. Mm-hmm. If I look at a psychology textbook from 100 years ago and now, they're very different, right? Yeah. It's not because sometimes people are like, let's just change it so we can sell a new edition, right? It's like, no, we've learned more. And when we contrast that with the non-scientific ways of thinking, what we see is that people get ideas and then they just keep those ideas. They don't test themselves to fail. They don't um, try to make sure that I'm right by showing that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And then they just keep those ideas forever. Right. And, and we see that in a lot of different realms, I think, whether it be about, you know, how to train a particular animal in a particular way for a certain job, whether it's how we should parent our children, whether it's, you know, what the best treatment is for X or Y or, you know, who I can and can't trust. And that's, 
you know, those confirmation biases that we talked about earlier, that's really why we have to develop something like the scientific method. Because if we don't test ourselves to fail, then all we're doing is setting ourselves up to have false beliefs. Sure. What does that do for you? And I'm sure you've proven your own self wrong um, with as much history as you have. But yeah. what does that do for you? I mean, is it for you and the way your mindset is? Is that, is that a feel-good thing for you? What, what is it like? What, like? what goes on in your head when you prove your own self wrong? Yeah, so, so I think a good scientific mindset, uh, a good critical thinking mindset, is where you've got an open mind, kind of like you mentioned earlier, right? But not so open that your brain falls out, right? <laughs> so I'm not just all the time completely open to everything. I'm open to being proven wrong, right? But you have to actually show me that I'm wrong. You can't just tell me I'm wrong. Right. And at the same time, as a good scientist and critical thinker, I've always got like this little voice in the back of my head saying, you know what? You could be wrong. <laughs> like you think you know this, but you could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. And that's what drives me to examine my own beliefs and to do research and to be open to engaging with other people who believe things that are very different than I do. Because I could be wrong. You're right. Right. And I'm okay with that yeah. because when I'm proven wrong, what that to me means is that what's happened is now I know a little bit more than I used to. Yeah. Right. Now I know better. Now I'm closer to understanding what, you know, the reality of the world is mm -hmm. and I don't take it personally. Right. And that's where so many of us have a problem with that is that, you know, if I'm wrong, well, that shows that I suck, right? And I'm stupid and I'm dumb. And right. It's like, no, that shows that you're open to getting better, right? You're open to doing better. And whether that's, you know, as a police officer, or as a teacher, as a trainer, whatever it happens to be, that mindset of, I could be wrong, mm -hmm. is invaluable, I think because it leads us to, to start questioning what it is that we think we know, mm -hmm. and then to develop those, what we would call a well-justified belief. So it's not just, I believe this, it's, well, here's why I believe it, and here's the evidence to support that belief. And that makes us, I think, better humans. Sure. Well, and you know, for me, that was a huge learning lesson. Uh, I started learning about training dogs when I was like 14 years old. I grew up with them in the home. I tried to train our own pet dogs, which were German shepherds and things like that. So I've always been around strong dogs. And I took what the pet dog trainer as solid gold because I trusted that person. Right. And then I joined the Marine Corps. And when I got into, um, I became a sniper. And one of the top three things the enemy will do is send the dogs out. So they gave us a basic understanding of how dogs depend on their handler, which is why you don't shoot the dog first. If you can shoot the handler first, because the dog's nothing without the direction right. of the handler. And they started teaching, teaching us about um, that bond and, and how it's, it's very similar to children. Um, like, you know, what we've, we've now know through uh, some of the research by neuroscientist, Dr. Greg Burns over at Emory um, with the MRI imaging that he's done on, on dogs, you know, training them to lay calmly in an MRI machine with no sedation, no restraints. 
um, we know more about the reward system or the caudate nucleus. And um, they really do depend on us, which is, is great. So at, at a young age, I was very offended when people questioned me because I didn't have a mature enough or a creative enough mind to really evaluate. So I, I do feel like age kind of helps, you know, younger mind may want to defend ego a little bit more because that's their sense of worth in the family or in the in school or the social environment. But as you get older, I think if you really want to excel in anything that you do, you need to develop more of that critical mind to say, well, it's okay that I'm wrong. And I think for me, that's when I, I found my business, my video blog, and my, my ability to interview people has went through the roof with popularity because I'm okay, same way as you, I'm okay being proven wrong. And let me tell you, I've been proven wrong a lot. Talk to my <laughs> wife, she will tell you, uh, eight discussions out of 10, she finds a way to prove me wrong. And I'm like, dang it, you were right. And she goes, well, I'm not trying to be right. I'm just trying to bring logic into whatever the topic is. And I'm always talking about my wife and she's always like, I hope people don't think that I'm really that way. And I'm like, no, I'll make sure I say something because <laughs> she doesn't want to create the belief. <laughs> right, right. Mm -hmm. so I, well, I think one thing that you said was really important and, I, and, I, and I, I would like your listeners to, I think, really hone in on it, which is being questioned right? If someone responds negatively to questioning in terms of, hey, can you tell me why this is right? Like, can you tell me why this is accurate and true, the information that you're telling me? If they respond negatively to that, right, that probably means that they can't, right? Ooh, that they don't good. have that justified belief, right? So if I'm, let's say I'm arguing with somebody about politics, right? Uh, and I say, well, tell me why it is that you believe this or that. And they just get defensive mm -hmm. and say, well, that's just what I believe. You know, that's a shitty argument, right? <laughs> like that's not useful. Uh, and all that does is that shows me that you don't know why you believe something or that you wow. don't have a good evidence to support your beliefs. Mm -hmm. And like if I'm in class and someone asks me a question and I don't know it, you know what my response is? I don't know. Yeah. And that's okay because we don't have to know everything. But I tell you what, let's figure out how we can know that. How can we get that information? Right. Yeah. And if I make a statement in one of my classes or with one of my patients or when I'm consulting for these businesses all over the place and they say, hold on, hold on. What do you mean? I don't believe that. I can say, okay, well, here's where I'm getting that from, right? Here's the empirical evidence to support this. Here's why we know that this is, you know, as far as we can tell right now, the most accurate thing. Yeah. And if you get defensive and upset when people question you, mm -hmm. that's usually because you can't back your beliefs up. And you get worked up because they're questioning like who you are. And then you, that's where you want to go into that fight mode of protecting your ego. Exactly. Like if someone shows me that I'm wrong, like I don't take that as I'm a terrible person now. Right. I take that as, Oh, I was wrong. Now I know better. Okay, that makes me a better person. Yeah. But if your ego and yourself is so wrapped up in everyone, you know, being worshipful towards you and adoring of you, mm -hmm. then yeah, that's going to sting when you're wrong, right? Uh, yeah. Man, I have a question for you that's kind of off what I, I it just hit me. 
And I, I don't even know if you'll have an answer for me, um, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I, what I've noticed in training a lot of um, police officers is that dogs like humans, they have off days. There's days where they're not as good as what they were the day before. And it seems like some officers almost live vicariously through their dog. So if their dog performs not so good, they get irritated and pissed off. And then, you know, of course, they blame everything else. They go into, uh, was that self-serving biases? Or, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and they, they blame everything else. But the fact that it's okay that your dog, I mean, it's like, why does the dog performance get translated into, well, this is, this defines my performance as a police officer. And if my dog is not doing well, then I must not be doing well. I mean, why is there so much emotion and why did they get so angry with a dog that we know is not a hundred percent all the time? Yeah. So I, I think you, you could draw a parallel between that and let's say that uh, you have a, a kid who's playing sports, right? And your kid doesn't have a good game. Right. And the parents get all angry and upset. Right. And they might blame the kid. They might blame someone else. But a lot of times they don't ever say, well, is there anything I should have done differently? Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of times with uh, trainers and handlers, you can probably see that same thing. Whether you're talking about canine handlers and the police or you're talking about, you know, riders on horses or whatever it is. Um, because a lot of times what we're so concerned with is don't make me look stupid, mm -hmm. right? And if we think that, you know, that's a reflection upon us, right? So my, my dog didn't do very well today. You know what? We all have off days. I didn't do well the other day, right? But I'm not blaming my dog, right? There's other factors that could have impacted that. Right. And so I think it's, it's important that when you're working in any sort of a team, whether you're talking about a, you know, a canine human team, or you're talking about a sports team or something at business to understand that all of us have roles to play. And you know what? Not everybody's 100% all the time. Mm -hmm. And if we then try and be punitive and punishing instead of understanding, okay, well, what was the problem? And then how can we move forward to fix that so maybe it doesn't happen next time? Sure. Then we're going to have a very negative atmosphere, right? Um, so if it was, okay, well, it turns out my dog didn't get enough rest, or I tried a new food and it upset their stomach and that threw them off, or, you know, whatever it happened to be, okay, well, I'll know to do this now differently in the future. Yeah. But if I'm in this mindset of like, no, 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 I'm doing everything right. And I don't have that kind of critical self-examination mm -hmm. of my own behavior and how that could then impact my animal, then you're likely to just keep having those kinds of problems. Right. What, um, what is your, because I, I have another question that popped into my head, but before I ask that or get into that, what is your definition of belief? I know an older definition from the Oxford dictionary states that, a belief is the acceptance that something exists or is true, especially one without any proof. And then the uh, Merriam-Webster's, I'm going off memory here, I believe it was um, the, ex uh, the, the acceptance that something is tr uh, exists or is something like which we judge to be true. And so like, what's your definition of belief? Yeah. 
So I think it depends on what kind of belief you're talking about, right? Um, So when when I talk about um, beliefs, generally what we're talking about is here's something that I think is true, right? And that I then act as if it is true. Ooh, that's good. Because our actions come from our right? Um, I don't just act without any sort of uh, reason for it, unless it's like a reflexive sort of action, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so beliefs to me are those things that we, we think and feel as are true and accurate that then drive our behavior. And those are the ones that I'm really interested in, the ones that drive that behavior, right? Because maybe, you know, maybe I believe that, I don't know, Bigfoot is a trans-dimensional traveling alien, but it has no impact on my behavior. Well, then who cares if I believe that, right? Right. If I have a belief that Bigfoot's a trans-dimensional alien, and therefore I have to, you know, keep everyone out of all forests everywhere, uh, and I start shooting people to keep them out of the forest in case Bigfoot shows up, then I'm concerned about that belief, right? Right. so for me, it's, it's, it's that, you know, that belief is, is what's driving our behaviors. And there's different kinds of beliefs, right? You can have a poorly justified belief or a well-justified belief. Mm-hmm. And when we have those well-justified beliefs, that's where we have empirical evidence and logical support for them. Poorly justified beliefs are those ones where, well, I believe it because someone told me or, well, that's just how I feel or, I'm basing it off of my small amount of experience with, you know, a particular group or a particular, um, you know, kind of exposure to the world, but I may not have enough exposure, right. And enough of a sample size to be able to say, Oh, this is how this or that is in reality. And so those well justified beliefs, that's what I, you know, am encouraging people and I try to help people develop. And that means you have to start by examining your beliefs to see, are they well justified or not? Mm-hmm. And that can be beliefs about, you know, uh, your, yourself. That can be beliefs about the people around you. That can be beliefs about politics, religion, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Can I justify that? And kind of like what we were talking earlier, um, those people who have well justified beliefs don't have problems telling you about them and defending them, right? Because they are well justified. Uh, And it's, it's those folks who haven't examined them, don't have well justified beliefs. That's where you start running into people getting so defensive and angry and they end up saying things like, well, let's just agree to disagree, which is a terrible phrase, right? Because what you're really saying is I'm tired of talking about this. Let's stop. Yeah. Instead of, no, let's actually hash this out and see which belief is more well justified. Yeah. Right? Number one, number two, where's the evidence lie? Right? Like if I think, I don't know, if I think that you know, we need to build a wall at the southern border and you don't, okay, well, let's just go our own way about it. No, let's actually take a minute and let's look at the evidence to support, you know, is this going to accomplish a certain action or is it not? Um, as opposed to just the, I think, thing that happens all too often nowadays, which is, uh, well, screw you, right? (laughs) And we just walk away. Uh Uh, I see that a lot in the police world. Yeah. In terms of the trainers and the... Yeah, the trainers, the handlers. Yeah. Yeah. 
I hear that all the time. You know, they'll go back and forth for a little bit, trash talking each other, but eventually they get to the point where, okay, fine, we're just not going to see eye to eye. And there's a lot of, I, you know, I don't want to say, let me rephrase. I don't want to say a lot and give the belief that it is thousands of people. No, it's not. There's a lot of good, good canine handlers out there and trainers that are like, hey, look, I'm open to having this discussion in a respectful, caring manner. I don't need to throw you under the bus, but I do want to talk about this. Let's discuss it. There are a lot of good trainers that, and handlers that want to do that. But you do have your few that do exactly what you're just describing. Yeah. So um, I, I was really happy to bring that up. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, that's where there's a big difference between a, a scientific mindset and a non-scientific mindset, right? So if, if I am arguing with another clinical psychologist about what the most effective method to treat, let's say, PTSD is, we don't just argue and argue and argue and then finally be like, ah, screw you, right? It's, okay, well, let's set up some clinical trials to test this, right? Let's set up some experiments to see which works better, yours or mine. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, all too often missing from uh, enormous swaths of working with animals, whether you're talking about dogs, horses, livestock, where people just develop these beliefs and then they just run with them forever, mm -hmm. right? As opposed to, you know what, let's do a controlled test of this. Let's see if your method or my method is better. Right. And let's do so in a non-biased way so that we remove, you know, the potential for, you know, well, I think I made this. So therefore, of course, I'm thinking it's better. Right. Let's put these things head to head and test them in such a way that we can actually determine, is this or that better? Hmm. And that's the scientific mindset. Right. Um, because, you know, I don't just want to argue for the next 50 years about this. And then I die. It's like, well, I'd rather know, am I right or not? And if I'm not right, you know what? I'd like to know that now so that I can change and correct as opposed to just, you know, moving forward ahead with my life and ignoring everything. Right. But that is that scientific mindset. That's a critical thinking mindset. And it's not a natural mindset for people. Yeah. Well, and as an educator, uh, I'm, I'm happy that you do have that mindset because man, if you got stuck on one thing, then you're passing that wrong information down, you know, and you know, you're going to be biased for that. Yeah. And people are going to be like, well, Dr. Lack said, so it, I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think yeah. that that's, for me, that's where I want to be. And, and, and I'm really glad that, you know, people have the mindset like you have, and I'm glad I obtained that mindset too. Because number one, I don't like to be wrong. You know, for me, it's an integrity thing. And like you said, look, if I don't know, I don't know. Or I can say, well, this is what I think based on this research, but is it possible that I didn't read the research, right? So I've learned how to say the way I see it from this piece of research that has to do with dogs and how they think or the behavior side or the belief side, whatever. Um, this is how I interpret it. And then hopefully it creates a discussion and I don't get thrown under the bus. But I, I really feel like there's quite a few people that really lack that, that ability to kind of be humble in that. And, and I think that's, that's one of the biggest things that I'm seeing as you talk to me about your mindset and how other researchers are. 
there has to be a sense of humility in there in order for you to grow and become smarter than what you were yesterday. Yeah. I, so we actually talk about that specifically in class and that term humility. Um, because if you, if you have this idea that, well, I'm right about everything and there's no way that I could be wrong, then there's no way that you will actually accept any kind of information showing you are wrong. Yeah. Right. Um, and so whether that's being humble about the limits of your knowledge, right? So like I'm, for example, not a microbiologist. So when my best friend that's a microbiologist talks about microbiology, I don't step in and go, uh, really? I don't know. I think of this, right? So I recognize the limits of my own knowledge and that means I recognize my ignorance, right? I recognize where I don't know things. And I recognize that I'm not ever going to be able to know everything. And if I act like I do, then, you know, that people are going to be able to tell that, right? Yeah. And they're going to be able to tell that you're just pretending. Yeah. Uh, and it's much more epistemologically sound for me to recognize my humility, right? So uh, I know what I don't know, right? And I'm aware that there's so much that I don't know. And that lets me then develop that kind of learning mindset of, okay, well, teach me, right? but only teach me if you actually have evidence to back it up, right? If you've got some good empirical support, logical reasons behind it, not just your own ideas. And that's it. You know, and I, I do have one final question for you. And I, I know how busy you are. And uh, we've been going almost an hour now, which is awesome. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the information that you're bringing to these, these uh, guys and gals that are helping protect our communities. Um, but you hit on something earlier, and then my brain went somewhere else because I was going to ask you about this before. But what I find interesting is how you said that uh, beliefs create action or behavior. And I started thinking about how the beliefs of other people create a behavior that then creates a belief in me. For example, if, uh, like men, for example, I, I think this is a good analogy, men really desire respect over like unconditional love. Uh, they need both, but respect is more important subconsciously. Um, and then for women, it's the opposite. So if a woman looks at you with a disgusted look on her face, um, we interpreted that as, well, what I just said, she didn't approve, or what I did disgusted her. And then, so if we see that repetitiously over and over and over again, eventually you get into a different relationship, and maybe that person gave you that disgusted look because they were tired, they, they didn't even intend, they had no intention of disrespecting you, but because of your repetition, repetitious past experiences, created that belief and now you're going to behave as you believe but then that's going to create a belief in them that holy crap first thing in the morning this guy's an ass right <laughs> right yeah and that's i mean that's a a very good example uh i would say of one of the things that we call a self-fulfilling prophecy right which is i hold a certain belief which makes me act in a certain way which then just confirms said belief holy right? wow. So if I, I'll, I'll give, you, give you an example related to dogs, right? So if I think that uh, all dogs are scary and terrifying and they just want to rip my throat out, right? and then I'm approached by a dog and I act in a way that indicates I am 
scared, worried, think they're going to rip my throat out. And then the dog, you know, maybe has a like, oh, what's going on? You know, or maybe they smile, right? And you interpret that as, ah, they're bearing their teeth, right? And then you run away and you leave. You think back and you're like, I knew it. I knew they were vicious beasts that all wanted to kill, right? When in reality, maybe it was just saying, hello, <laughs> like, and, and it's, it had just finished running. So its mouth drops open, right? And you can see its teeth because it's panting. But your belief is driving that interpretation of it, right? Ooh, interesting. And so you and I can see the exact same stimuli and come away from it with a very different understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I work with people all the time on are fears and phobias. So in my office at the university, I have a ball python. He's about five feet long. He just lives in an aquarium there. And I use him to demonstrate to people how to cure phobias, right? And so he's about 19 years old, wow. has never bit anybody, right? And he's, he's older than my freshman, right, in college. He's never bit anybody, which most of them can't say. But if I bring him into class, guarantee it's the exact same stimuli, same snake. Some people are going to respond to that like, oh, that's cool. And some people are going to be like, hell no, I'm getting out of here, right? I just wet myself. I've got to leave, right? This is terrifying. And what is it that's driving it? Because it's the same stimulus, right? It's your interpretation and your beliefs. If I believe all snakes are dangerous, if I believe all people who look like this act this way, right? If I believe that dogs of this breed are particularly this or that kind of way, then I'm going to find the evidence to support that belief, right? Back to that confirmation bias. Because those beliefs drive how we interpret the world around us and they drive what we then do in response to it. And so we have to examine those things, those potential biases and those beliefs that we have that could then impact our daily work as, let's say, a police officer, right? As a professor, as an educator, as, you know, a health professional. And if you don't examine those potential biases that you have, then you're very, very prone to just continuing on in the same way, maybe not with good evidence. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one question that I have for you, oh, well, another one. I keep coming up with questions for you. You're, you're making my brain uh, go 500 miles an hour. Right. Um, you talked about the ball python. Do you believe that the best remedy for fears and phobias and other psychological disorders is exposure over medications and, and stuff like that? Yeah, so for our fear and anxiety-based problems, our, our gold standard uh, treatment is behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy that focuses on exposure with response prevention. Um, and that's, that's really should be our first-line treatment. Um, certainly not everybody responds as well as we would like, which is where you then start seeing maybe medications come in, potentially other kinds of supplemental therapies. Um, even like non-invasive um, brain stimulation and things like that. Uh, but exposure and response prevention, which is a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, really is that first line treatment. Uh, because it works so well, it has no side effects, um, and it maintains. So you don't have to go to therapy forever. 
right? Yeah. Uh, you go to therapy, you learn those skills, you change your behavior, and then you stop going to therapy and your progress continues, uh, which is unfortunately not what we see with things like medication usually. I stop taking it, it stops working. Right. So do you, this is my interpretation of exposure. I believe, and I could be wrong, and I'm okay with being wrong, so maybe you can <laughs> direct there. But I believe it's a way, I believe that if you, based on what I'm learning so far in psychology, that when you have repetition of thought, it creates the belief in some cases. I know some beliefs just happen instantaneously. I get that. And I understand there's different categories of belief, as, as you said earlier. But I believe certain things is repetition of thought. Well, um, the last time there was a snake present, um, it just scared the poop out of me. I watched the YouTube video where a guy got bit by a python, and then they kind of repeat that experience and, and feeling that sensation of fear and the chemical reactions and the, the cortisol and the adrenaline and all that other stuff. Um, when you do the exposure, I feel like it's each time the person becomes more consciously aware. It's almost like, okay, I've, I've been around this snake five times, nothing bad has happened so far. So it's almost like the more you do it, the more the, the person or even the dog comes to the realization that I've done this a hundred times and nothing bad did happen. So then you begin to get consciousness. Yeah, so that's, you know, the big thing with exposure and response prevention is that for things that people are afraid of, they have the exposure to it all the time, right? But then they're acting in a way that confirms their beliefs, right? So I see, I see a snake, right? And I'm afraid of snakes. And I go, oh, no. Nah! And then I run away and I feel better, right? Because I'm no longer around that. I think I knew that snake was dangerous, right? Because I feel better because I'm away from it. Ah, uh, yeah. What we do in exposure therapy is we expose you to that same stimuli. And then we work on preventing that natural anxiety-based response so that you have a chance to do like you said, which is I have a chance to see I was wrong. Yeah. Right. I'm putting myself in a situation and staying in it to prove that my anxiety is lying to me. My fear is lying to me. And when we do that over and over again, you start shifting those beliefs that you hold about that particular kind of stimuli, a snake, heights, whatever it happens to be. And you start readjusting it back to normal. So are some snakes dangerous? Yeah. Are some dogs dangerous? Yeah. Are some people dangerous? Yeah. But are all snakes dangerous? No. Are all dogs dangerous? No. Are all people dangerous? No, of course not. Uh, and so it's all about really shifting that cognitive structure or your schemas about those things back to a normal baseline. Yeah. I'm not trying to make someone completely without fear, right? Because it turns out fear is one of those big things that helps keep us alive. Sure. But I want it to be a normal level of fear where I can go use the bathroom in a public restaurant, right? Without worrying that I'm going to catch some sort of disease, yeah. Unless I wash my hands for 30 minutes or something, right? Um, so that, yeah, that exposure process is all about correcting those false beliefs that have been developed and then maintained through a lot of the ways that we talked about earlier. Right. Um, 
and just shifting them back to normal. Right. Well, and that's, um, I, you know, talking to you has really made me think about my research paper that I did when I was going to Purdue. My hypothesis was to determine whether the human belief system alone has more of a negative impact on dog behavior compared to a positive. So first I looked statistically, okay, how, how, what's the population of the United States? So I figured that out. Then how many, how many dogs live in American homes in the, out of the overall population? And of course that number is still not accurate because there's some unregistered dogs. But pretty good number. And then, okay, so out of the entire population, how many are dealing with an abnormal psychological disorder? Your fears, your phobias, your anxieties, all that other stuff. And it turns out the majority of people in the United States are dealing with these psychological disorders, you know, and, and it's due to like economy, social media, the news, you know, spreading. Yeah. We've got about 30% about of our population here in the U.S. will qualify at some point in their life for a, an anxiety-based uh, diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. See, now that figure is a little bit lower than what I, I got from my paper, but I, I'm glad you said that because it could have been, I looked at something that was a little flawed. Um, but either way, what we do know is that there is a high rate of dogs. I mean, when you're talking 30% out of a crap ton of people, that's actually a pretty large number. And then you got to figure out how many dogs live in those homes. That's a lot of dogs with, you know, these that are feeding on their owner's belief of, of a lot of times was creating the fear. And I've seen this multiple times where somebody would get a dog, they'd come to me when I had my kennels and they would say, well, my dog is dealing with social anxiety. It doesn't like to be around people. And I would say, okay, when you got the dog, did you get it as a puppy? Well, no, 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 we rescued it. Okay. So did the dog have social anxiety when you first got the dog? No, we thought this dog was good to go. He was great. And I said, okay, does anybody in the home deal with social anxiety? Like who's around the dog the most? Well, my wife is. Okay, how does she feel when she's around a group of people? Well, she doesn't like crowds and she doesn't like groups. So I wanted to know, is it possible that the dog learned to be fearful of crowds through trial and error by being around mom? The answer is yes. Oh yeah, one of, my, one of my favorite examples that I use to talk about things like that is uh, the story of Clever Hans. Do you know Clever Hans? I do, yeah, but explain to our, our viewers. Yeah. So, so Clever Hans was a horse that lived in the early part of the 1900s um, in Germany. And his owner claimed that Hans could do these like incredible mathematic feats, right? So they would ask him in English, or I'm sorry, in German, they would ask him a, a question, uh, a mathematics question, Hans, what is seven times six, right? Uh, and then he would start stomping his foot. And then when he got to the right number, he'd stop. It was like, what the, this horse is doing math, right? Uh, and, you know, it became very famous and he was like touring around. Uh, but there were some people who were very skeptical of that as they should be, because horses not known for their high math abilities, right? Uh, and what they found through very careful, uh, controlled trials was that Hans would always give you the right answer to math as long as you knew the answer. Mm -hmm. Because what he was doing was this horse was simply responding to and had been conditioned to stop when he got certain cues from the people around him, right? 
So I'm at 40, no, 41, 42. People are like, oh, I better stop, right? And then he gets praised and reinforced for that. Uh, but as soon as you, you know, just whisper it in his ear, right, where no one else can hear you, then the horse just kind of stands there like, what's going on? And all animals are like that, right? Um, humans included, right? We are conditioned by the environment around us. And so if I've got a dog that is picking up on cues from me about what to be afraid of and not be afraid of, right? What to bark at and be loud at versus not. Who's safe, who's not then yeah, of course your dog's going to respond to those things because they're taking their cues from you, right? You're, they're learning from you just like our children learn from us. Mm -hmm. uh, same sort of thing. Well, and I think that people also need to understand that a lot of times our behavior or our body language is subconscious. So in, in a lot of cases, so you're not really consciously aware that you're actually behaving in a specific way that is actually teaching the dog a thing or two about the environment that it's in. So, and that's yeah. why I said, listen, training is not just this regimented sit down, stay. It's literally how you behave around the dog. But then I wanted people to understand that we behave as we believe, which took me down that rabbit hole and why we've even met in the first place. I've been obsessed with belief for about five years now. Um, well, it got worse when I wrote my research paper because I'm like, well, to, I've got to either support or discredit my hypotheses. And is it true that the human belief system has more of a negative impact? And I said, well, I need to know more about belief. And wow, that's, I'll tell you, that's a big topic. So the it's, fact- It's a large area. Yeah. Oh my God, it's huge. And the fact that we've been able to cover a lot of the ground that we have in an hour is pretty impressive, but- it's still the tip of the iceberg, you know, when it comes to this. I, I just think there's so many mechanics to it, but I really feel like we together did a great job in educating the viewers a little bit more about why they think and feel the way that they do and uh, how that can have an impact on not just dogs, but like you brought up with Clever Hans and, and some of that other stuff. So um, I, in closing, Dr. Lack, I really want to thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you think our, our viewers need to be aware of or, or understand? I, th I think the big thing is to, you know, I would encourage all of your viewers to start thinking about their own beliefs, right? And just really starting to engage in some of what we call metacognition, right? So thinking about my own thoughts. Why am I thinking that? Why did I respond that way? Instead of just doing it. Because when you start reflecting on that, that gives you a chance to then start putting those things to the test, right? And to start looking for information out there that will show, well, is this accurate or not? Great. Thank you so much. And uh, one of the questions I had for Dr. Lack when we were doing the pre-interview was if you could recommend one of your books that could help people understand the, the, their belief system and some other things. And he recommended why why you can't trust your brain and i'm is that it yeah so it's yeah the full title is very long but it's critical thinking science and pseudoscience why you can't trust your brain so perfect i'm gonna put a link to dr lack's book i highly recommend that if, if you're a canine handler if you're in the training industry um or a uh just even a regular dog owner i i think that we've established a good 
um, a, a good fact or a good point that your dog is going to be affected the way you respond to your environment, which comes from your beliefs. So I recommend this book to absolutely everybody. Um, I have not read it, but I will be buying it and reading it myself because I love this kind of stuff and I've really enjoyed this conversation, Dr. Lack. Um, so look for that link below in the comments. I will have the link, the direct link to the um, Amazon store where you can buy Dr. Lack's book. And again, if you're near a Barnes and Noble, you can also get it um, there. Now everything's on the internet, so I'm sure you could just Google Barnes and Noble and find Dr. Lack's book. And he's got five other books besides that one too. You have six books that you've written, correct? Yeah, yeah, so far, yep. Yeah. Now, if somebody wants to look at one of the 60 scientific articles that you've, you've written, wh where would they go to get that? It, are those for purchase anywhere? Are they available? Uh, yeah, you just actually you can just go to my website, um, caleblack.com. And uh, there's an area that says research. And on there, there's links to all the different articles, book chapters, et cetera. Excellent. Well, Dr. Lack, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I'm really happy with all the knowledge that you brought to us. And uh, I hope all my viewers, I hope you guys and gals have absolutely soaked this information in. Please take it to heart because in the end, we're all on the same team and we're all trying to do the exact same thing. And that's to have efficient police working canine teams doing the job to the best of their ability. So um, thanks again, Dr. Lack. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Brian. You're welcome. So for, listen, for all you viewers out there, as always, stay safe, watch your six, and Semper Fi.